seated. Yes, thank you. The sermon text this morning is from the Gospel of John, starting in chapter 12, verses 1 through 26. I invite you to read along, or follow along with me as you will, on page 11 or in your own Bibles. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 26. Hear the word of the Lord. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it, for eternal life. But if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servants be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your word as people who need it. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is food for our souls. It contains the message of Christ, what we need to live lives for you and for your glory right now, Father, in this earth. So we pray, Lord, that your heart would go deep, your word would go deep into our hearts, that it would grow and produce fruit, and that we would not just have more knowledge of who Jesus is or more knowledge of theology, but, Father, we would have a love for you, a love for your gospel, a love for the person, the living Savior, Jesus Christ himself. We pray your spirit would do this work even now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, there's actually a lot of mystery surrounding Jesus during his ministry on earth. From our vantage point, you know, we kind of know the full story. We tend to gloss over the fact that much of what Jesus was doing throughout his life 
and who, you know, who he was, what he was about, it was mostly a mystery, a mystery to people. And this mystery was actually on purpose. Uh, let me give you a few examples, okay? Remember the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, the wedding at Cana. Jesus was asked by his mom to do something about a wine shortage. And his answer was, my hour has not come. He wasn't ready to reveal himself to the crowd. Interestingly, he did end up turning water into wine, but he did it without any spectacle or show. You might remember that twice during Jesus' earthly ministry, Scripture tells us that he escaped arrest in Jerusalem. He was teaching against the Pharisees and you know, disturbing the powers that be, and they wanted to arrest him, but he escaped because his hour had not yet come. And when Jesus says his hour has not yet come, when Scripture speaks of this hour, it's not talking about a literal 60 minutes. It's a metaphor. It's a concept. It means when Jesus is going to finally make his move, when the climax of his life and his ministry finally reaches its apex. Almost every time Jesus cast out demons, he did not permit them to speak because they knew who he was. And for some reason, Jesus didn't want this knowledge spread around quite yet. It's an interesting move for somebody who's trying to become famous on the teaching circuit in Israel. You might also remember that when Peter and James and John went up with Jesus on the mountain, and Jesus was literally transformed in front of their eyes with the glory breaking forth from his being when he became radiant and white, more than anything on earth could ever be, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Do you remember what Jesus told them? He said, Zip it. Don't tell anybody. I don't want this out there right now. That's a mystery. It's interesting. Jesus timed his ministry carefully. And though his disciples and the crowds often became frustrated with this, they were trying to figure it out, we know from day one, from the wedding at Cana till the triumphal entry, Jesus operated on a divinely appointed schedule with everything he said and did. He did not fulfill other people's desires of who he should be and when he should be it. In fact, he does not even fulfill his own desires. He's fulfilling the desires and the timing of his heavenly father. I think it's so important for you and I to just kind of sit on that truth for a minute and realize that if we had been a disciple at this day and age when Jesus was on earth, or if we had even been the crowd watching, or maybe if we had even been the Pharisees plotting against Jesus, we would have been constantly wondering, when is Jesus going to make his move? What's he going to do next? What's going to happen? When is his hour going to actually come? And we know this. The answer is, today. When is Jesus' hour coming? It's today. It's our scripture passage this morning. And if that doesn't wake you up, I don't know if anything will. From a purely literary perspective, this section of John and John chapter 12, it's when all the threads of the story get woven together and they come to one. It's when the story ramps up and all the loose ends tie together. And as I have studied in this uh, scripture passage, I, I think there's four clear messages that we can glean about the hour of Jesus. And and I'm going to do a four-point sermon, which is a little unusual for me. I like to do three points normally, but I have faith that you guys can handle one extra bonus point on Palm Sunday, okay? So four. They're not all equally as long. The last one's a little short. But let me give you the first message. The first message that we can see about the hour of Jesus, that his hour has come. It's a rather strange message, and it certainly sounded strange to the people at the time. And the first message is this. Jesus' hour means death. His hour means death. The culmination of his life, 
is to die. You know, we focus a lot of attention on the triumphal entry, and we should. It's one of, one of just a few events recorded in all four Gospels. But if you look here, the story, and I purposely set our, our passage for today a little further back, the story actually begins six days before Passover. And it begins two miles away from Jerusalem in this little town called Bethany. You've got to kind of picture the story here. Jesus is in a small city with his friends Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead, and Mary and Martha. And his friends are there, and they're like, Jesus is coming to town. This is awesome. Let's throw him a dinner party. So all his friends get together, and they have a party. It's the last chance that Jesus can relax and hang out before he goes to Jerusalem, where there's literally hundreds of thousands of people gathered for Passover. It's a great picture of his humanity, being with his friends, enjoying good food and drink. And you know, they had a great system of dining in Israel. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but they didn't sit down while they ate. They actually reclined at table, um, and uh, the, the middle, uh, you know, the, the, the table was actually in a U. They had a big, kind of like what we have up here, this big U, and nobody sat down. Instead, they reclined, and you would have your feet kind of back, and you would rest your left arm on the table, and then you would eat with your right hand while you're just kind of sitting there chilling, relaxing. Like, that's amazing. Why don't we do this? You get to literally have a nap and hang out, recline at table while you're eating dinner. And it was at this position that Jesus is doing. He's sitting there reclining with Lazarus and his friends that allowed Mary to do something out of the blue. While he's at this table, in the middle of dinner, she takes this pound of expensive essential oil, this nard, and she comes and she anoints the feet of Jesus. And she mops up the extra with her own hair. Now, you've got to understand this stuff, this nard, this oil, is really rare and really precious. It comes from a plant that grows in the Himalayas between you know, 10,000 and 16,000 feet elevation. It's not something that people got their hands on very easily. And I'm not really an essential oils type of guy, but from what I understand, a little bit goes a long way. But she doesn't hold back. She dumps the entire bottle, all 327 grams of this precious oil, to anoint Jesus. And the extra, wiping up with her hair. Now, just picture. Picture the smell. You know, they're hanging out in this small room, and all that oil, it just, it would have filled and dominated the space. Nothing else could you even probably concentrate it on than the smell of that. Filling the house. In the same way her devotion for Jesus was filling the house. Again, this oil was costly. It was worth, it tells us here, about 300 days' work. So thousands of dollars. It's kind of hard to figure out in today's modern equivalent, but just know that it was not something that you would normally just dump at all. It was no small thing to use in this time in this way. And we see that's where Judas comes into the picture. One of the, one of the disciples, Judas, in verse 4, it tells us he didn't like this. He asked why the ointment wasn't sold and given to the poor. He wasn't impressed with Mary's devotion. He thought it was a waste. And then verse 6 is an editorial comment by the author, John, and he tells us the real reason Judas said this. The real reason is because he's a thief, and he liked to help himself to the money bag. Jesus want, Judas wanted to sell this ointment and then presumably take some money for himself. Just on a side note here, it's interesting how fake piety, it can be used as a cover for sinful actions. You know, his objection had a certain, you know, kind of plausibility to it, and yet he's not somebody who's concerned with the poor. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing and a man seeking his own gain. And it's at this objection that Judas, he raises, that Jesus speaks. He finally makes a comment on what's happened. 
and he gives us his first message. He turns to Judas directly, and, and in the original language, we know that he's actually speaking to Judas directly. It's, it's, it's pointed to one person, not to the entire crowd. He, he, he looks at Judas, and he says, leave her alone. He rebukes him. He knows who Judas is. You know he's about to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And then he goes on for the sake of all there to explain Mary's motive. It was intended that she should save this ointment for the day of my burial. I mean, that got serious pretty quick. They're hanging out, and Mary does this kind of crazy thing. Judas rebukes her, and Jesus says, nope, this is for the day of my death. Again, from our side of history, we understand this. It would have been confusing for them. But the first message of Jesus about his hour is that he came to die. His death is now. It's in Jerusalem. It's coming. It's literally days away. It's so close. So think about this. The smell of this ointment that he was just anointed with by Mary will linger on his body until the day he's hanging from the cross. It's that close. What's perhaps the most striking about all this is that while Jesus is having this dinner party with his friends, he's being anointed and devote, the devotion of Mary is just filling the house. Anointed for his burial. Verse 10 tells us the Pharisees are plotting to kill him and Lazarus. His friends are celebrating him. He's preparing for his own death. And these powers that be are saying, we can't wait for you to get to Jerusalem with your friend because we're going to kill you. Not just Jesus, but Lazarus. I feel bad for Lazarus. I don't know about you guys. But he died, he was raised back to life by Jesus, no choice of his own, mind you, and then he becomes famous because he's the guy who died and came back to life. He's living proof of the power of Christ. He's living testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who has the power over life and death. He's the real deal. And the Pharisee says, we've got to take out Lazarus. As long as Lazarus is around, people are going to follow Jesus. Lazarus and Jesus undermined their system of power, and it tells us later on the glory that they love so much that comes from man. They were, they were consumed with that. Another important contrast is here to see on one hand the Pharisees who want Jesus dead, and on the other hand, Jesus himself, who's heading to Jerusalem to willingly die and offer his life as a sacrifice. Jesus knows he's going to die. Like, isn't that strange? They want, in some strange way, they want the same thing. Completely different motive. Jesus is not going to die for the Pharisees. Jesus is willing to go to Jerusalem and die because it's the Father's will and his own will. That's his hour. In fact, Mark Jones says, if we do not understand that Christ's death was voluntary, then we don't understand his death at all. We've got to get that straight right here and now. His death was a voluntary thing. In fact, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus told us something very similar in John chapter 10, a few, a few chapters over to the left in your Bible. In verse 17 and 18, he said this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. It's crystal clear. Jesus is not a victim of any plot. He willingly goes to Jerusalem out of obedience to the Father and his own will. He didn't ask to be killed by crucifixion, though he knew it would certainly happen. Many events and people were responsible for this death. In fact, Peter reminds us in his sermon on Pentecost in uh, Acts chapter 2 that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was a plan from the beginning. And what this means is that Jesus was not a victim. He did not get foiled by the Pharisees. He willingly offered himself to the Father on our behalf. 
He didn't offer rams or goats or gold or money. He offered himself, the most precious thing in all creation, Jesus, the Son of God, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the one who upholds the universe by the power of his word, the firstborn over all creation, the one through whom and to whom all things have been created, the beginning, the end, the alpha, the omega, the high king of heaven, this one, his entire life is an offering of willful obedience and sacrifice to God. The message of Jesus here is this. I'm going to Jerusalem to die, not because of the Pharisees, not because of Pilate, but for the Father's will, in my will, and for love. And the second message about Jesus is ours, found in verse 12 through 19. Take a look. Starting in verse 12 tells us, The large crowd had come to the feast. They heard Jesus was coming. And this is where we get the very famous Palm Sunday image. They've taken the branches of the palm tree and crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, uh, Pastor Ben preached recently on the triumphal entry out of the Gospel of Luke. So I won't spend a lot of time going over the details here. I want to focus more on the intent of the message. And to be honest, I'm actually not sure why we call it the triumphal entry. Um, His triumphal entry will be when he returns to earth, when the trumpet sounds and he comes down from on high riding a white war horse. I suppose, though, during the first advent of Jesus, on this this, this, chapter of of history, this is the closest thing we have. You know, Jesus, throughout his public ministry, as I've already observed, he stayed away from the crowds. He withdrew from them time and time again to pray. He sent people away and told them to stay silent about what he had done for them. But now, when his public ministry is on the very last sentence, he chooses to do the most public thing he's done. He chooses to enter Jerusalem by the main gate with the large clouds, accepting their praise and their cry of Hosanna. The crowds gathered to meet Jesus as king, and they wanted Jesus to make his move. They were ready. They were like, finally, we've been trying to make you king for literally years now. We want you to unseat Rome, the political power. We want you to set up this earthly kingdom. And the people come out to greet him and welcome him as the Savior from the Romans, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. You know, Hosanna means save now. That's what it means, literally. Save us now, Jesus. We're ready. We don't want the Romans anymore. Save us now, Jesus. Finally, come. And the palm branches that they laid at his feet are symbols of victory and kingship and royalty. And they encouraged him to take the throne of Israel as an earthly king. However, they didn't get what they wanted. Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey. He did this in conscious fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah, one of the minor prophets, and if you go read Zechariah chapter 9, you see that the prophesied king is he's gentle and he brings peace. He brings peace not just to Israel, but to the nations. And his peace extends as far as his reign. And his reign is from one sea to the other. It's from the beginning of this river to the ends of the earth. It's a metaphor that is literally the entire creation. His peace extends forever. And so this crowd, they wanted a militaristic Messiah, but they got the Prince of Peace. They wanted deliverance from Rome, but they got, they got a cross. They wanted a war horse, but they got a donkey. Jesus doesn't come to fulfill our expectations or desires. He didn't then, and he doesn't now. 
He doesn't accommodate our whims or ambitions. He follows the will of his Father. You see, Jesus is just not who people want him to be. You must understand how confusing this was. Even the disciples, verse 16 tells us, his disciples did not understand these things at first. They didn't get it. Why are you coming on a donkey, Jesus? Isn't this your moment? Isn't this your hour? He could feed an army. He could raise the dead. He could heal any disease or injury. The crowd had been waiting for him to come, to be the unstoppable king they all imagined and knew he could be. I don't know if you remember the story from John chapter 6, when Jesus fed the 5,000 people out of one lunchbox. You know, it was absolutely miraculous. He had to literally flee from the, from the crowd up to the mountains. Like, it's almost a comical picture. He's like running away, like going uphill, being like, no, I don't want this. Because the scripture tells us they were going to grab him and take him and force him to be king. I don't even know how you force someone to be king. But Jesus, I mean, what's most, it, the miracle in some ways is the 5,000 people that were fed. Although that shouldn't really be that remarkable. We're talking about God. But it's more remarkable that Jesus said, I'm not going to be a king like that. I flee that earthly kingdom. That's not the path my father has for me. I deny the earthly power because there's something greater. That's not the kind of king I'm going to be. You're going to see the kind of king I am. I'm not going to be an earthly king. I'm going to be the king of peace, the king of Zechariah chapter 9. And so here he is entering Jerusalem, finally for the crowds, completely, consciously, and publicly proclaiming the kind of king he is on a donkey, the king of peace to the nations. So the second message of the hour in conclusion is this, the hour belongs to the king of peace. The third message is this, we're making our way through. The third message is the hour is for the nations. You know, in the Gospel of John, there's nine references to the hour of Jesus. And here in verse 23, this is where we find this message. It starts really in verse 23. We find the first time ever in the scripture that says, my hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So what prompted the hour to be now? Like all the things that's happened, like why right now? Well, scripture tells us that the coming of the Greeks is what prompted the hour to be now. Now, these Greeks aren't Jews. They're not Greek-speaking Jews. John would have used a different word in the original language, and they're not even necessarily people from the country of, of Greece. The term Greeks means Gentiles. It means people who are just not Jewish. They didn't grow up Jewish. They're not ethnically Jewish. They're just non-Jewish. And they're part of the Greek-speaking empire and world, and they've come to Jerusalem for whatever reason to worship, to see, to hear, and they, they basically come and say, we want to get an interview with Jesus. He's the most popular speaker, teacher, miracle worker that exists today. And so they go to the disciples and say, hey, we want to see Jesus. Can we have an audience with him? Can we, can we have an interview? And the disciples go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, there's some Greeks here who want to see you. You know, do you want to take the interview or not? We don't actually know if Jesus granted the interview. In fact, it's theologically irrelevant. But the culmination of Jesus' life on earth, his hour, his moment, it, it arrives the exact moment that Jesus learned the Greeks are seeking him. Jesus then teaches us through the metaphor of a grain of wheat what the hour of his glorification is like. Take a look at verse 24, Luke 12, uh, John 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Just how like a seed dies when it's planted, or it looks like it dies, right? Falls out of the flower, or the pod, or whatever it was. Falls out of the tree, into the ground. 
seems to be buried and gone. But it produces sprouts, it grows, new life comes, new plants. Jesus says, so too am I. So too am I. The effects of my death are going to be a harvest of people for his kingdom, both Jews and Greeks. You know, in, in studying this, it's, it's hard not to be reminded of Romans chapter 9 through 11, which, if you've read it and you've studied it, is actually one of the hardest sections uh, in Scripture. There's a lot of really difficult truths there that if you've never read Romans 9, uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11, definitely do it. It's the Word of God. But one of the things that it teaches us is that the remnant of Israel, these people of God from the Old Testament, those who are going to remain and be part of God's people going forward is small. And that these Gentiles, these non-Jews, are grafted in. They're kind of woven in like a wild vine. They become part of the plant, the true vine, which is Jesus himself. In fact, Romans chapter 10, verse 11 through 13, it explains it like this. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jew, Greek, if you call on the name of the Lord, you're saved. And so the Gentiles, the Greeks, coming to Jesus on this day as he comes as the king of peace to Jerusalem, as he arrives in Jerusalem to die, it reminds Jesus of the great mystery of ages he knew from the Father. A vast harvest of people from every tongue, every tribe and nation is his. They are his people, his possession, his subjects. They are bought with his precious blood and through his glorification that is about to happen, they are grafted into him, the true vine. This is the mystery of the kingdom of God that was kept secret for ages, but has now been disclosed through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This is the purpose for which he came. Nobody knew this. Jesus, you're going to have the Greeks come in? You're going to let these people be part of your kingdom? Yes, my hour is for them. My hour is a grain of wheat falling in the earth to die, resulting in a harvest of the nations. Or let me put it to you this way. Let me make it personal. The king of peace, the bright morning star, worth more than anything in all creation. He willingly came to suffer and die for you. You are the harvest Jesus came for. You are his inheritance, the sheep of his fold. You are the one that heard the irresistible voice of the good shepherd, the one that the father has given to Jesus to be his treasured possession. This ought to just shock our hearts when we think that the hour of Christ is for Gentiles like us. That's the third message, is the hour is a harvest for the nations. It's for you and I. And that leads us into the final message of his hour, the final message of today, number four. So we're in bonus territory. You guys have done great. It is this. The final message is this, number four. The hour is one of self-denial. The hour is one of self-denial. You know, I already spent some time explaining how Jesus is not fulfilling his will in this hour, but he's fulfilling the will of his Father. But the emphasis here on this final point is a little bit less about him and a little bit more on us, which fits really well because it kind of tells us what we're supposed to do. Like, what do we do with that great truth that Christ came and died for us? How do we live in the light of that? Well, those who belong to him must follow his example. It's not a shock. Again, verse 24 through 26, take a look at what it says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. 
And where I am, there will my servants be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You know what this is? That's a radical way of life. That's a radical way of life that's only possible because Jesus has already walked down that path during his years on earth. I don't know if you noticed the love-hate contrast here. You've got to love one thing and hate another. You're not supposed to love your own life. You're supposed to hate it. That's a really strange thing. How do you hate your own life? Well, it doesn't mean you throw it away or even despise your own life. That, that, wouldn't, be, that wouldn't make a lot of sense. It really means preference. It means you prefer others' interests, not self-interest. It means you prefer specifically God's interests in your life, not your own. When you think about where do you spend your time, your talent, your treasure, like what you're supposed to do in this world during the short days that God has given you, what interests you follow, what do you pursue, we're supposed to get that from God's interests rather than something of our own. It means that we choose God's will and way above all else. You know, and there's two promises with that that really, that really make it sweet for us Christians. The first one is this, where I am, my servants will be. And the second one is those who follow me in the path of self-denial in this world have a place with me in future glory. These promises are amazing. They mean that on this path of self-denial that we are on with Jesus, that he is with us every step of the way. If you ever in this world go through your life, whether you're a high school student, whether you're, you know, working your job, whether you're, you know, retired, wherever you are, if you say, I'm going to choose Jesus, I'm going to choose his path, I'm going to choose his way. Every single step of the way, Christ says, I'm with you. Every single step of the way. You have the promise of his walking beside you in the path of self-denial. You know, and then the second promise is that, is that those who follow that path of self-denial in this world have a place with him in, his, in future glory. We're honored by the Father. These, these promises together mean we may miss out um, from things that other people get to enjoy. And it may feel like at times we're missing out. It may feel like, man, Everybody else has really got the good stuff. Everybody else is pursuing the things they want, the good things in this world. But this promise means that we never lose when we choose God. We more than gain every time we choose God in his way above our own. We literally are being honored by the Father. We come ahead every single time. You know, as a Christian who's been bought by the blood of Christ, and we love, we're supposed to love God in his ways more than ourself. And to the world, this looks like a death. To the world, it looks like a loss. But only those who know Christ, only those who have Christ, we know that this is a gain. In reality, it is only in this dying that we achieve the purpose for which we are created. It's interesting. There's a lot of research, actually, about happiness. I don't know if you read it. And happiness is one of those things that you just can't pursue head-on. I think I've even mentioned that before that if you want to be happy in this world, you want to be satisfied, you want to have that life where you're just like, man, I enjoy the things I have. The, the counterintuitive truth is the more you try to seek happiness, the more you try to seek satisfaction directly, you don't get it. It just slips through your fingers. And it's literally what Scripture says here. It says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth, it dies and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. This is the upside down. This is the, the inverse ethic, the inverse way that the kingdom of God works in our lives. That when we pursue others, when we pursue something besides ourselves, when we're willing to lay down and die, even our own interests, we gain. 
We have a life that's filled with purpose. We have a life that might be happy. And if it's not happy, it will certainly be filled with joy and contentment that's only found in God. It's in this dying to self that we produce fruit. It's in this dying to self that we find true satisfaction and joy. It's in this dying to self that we become more like Christ and less like the world. And the promise is that Christ is with us every step of the way. What else do we need? If we have Christ, we have everything. If we have the honor of the Father, which is the promise here, we have everything we need. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you so much for this picture that Christ gives us about his hour, Father. The picture of him coming to Jerusalem to die for our sins. The picture of him willingly, willingly carrying out the mission from you for our sake. We thank you that he is the king of peace who paved the way for our salvation through this, his shed blood on the cross. We thank you that he has lived this path and this life of self-denial, of choosing your way, choosing the good, choosing to lay down his life for others. Father, help us. Help us to have faith in him. Father, help us to live like him. Father, not to be saved, not to earn your salvation, but Father, because we have it in Jesus. Lord, this week as we go through Holy Week, I pray that you would remind us of these things, that our hearts would be filled with joy and that we would know you more. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.